Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about criminal clowns and fatal followers. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, And tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Well folks, here we are for the second week of Women in Horror Month. We are dedicating February to all of the sinister sirens that we have on our beloved team. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Ian Klink and H.N. Miller, our voice talents Michelle Kane and Paul J. McSorley. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on 
the dark. Our first tale of the evening is written by Ian Klink and is performed by Michelle Kane and Paul J. McSorley. In it, we meet a young couple obsessed with killer clowns staying at a unique Airbnb, but there is more than a good scare and some collectibles awaiting there. Now, without further ado, I present to you, Mr. Frowny. It's going to be an experience, she remembered Paul saying as the car pulled up to the ranch-style Airbnb. Cynthia could already feel this was a bad idea. She had been open to Paul's silly horror ideas in the past, regardless of their stupidity or his demented teetering towards the unreal. As her eyes focused on the house with the dirt-saddled siding and withered bushes in the front, on the theme for the creepy attraction. She let out a long sigh without realizing it. Oh, come on, Paul said. She looked away from the house, meeting her husband's excitable eyes. What? You sighed. No. Yes, you did. I did not, she exclaimed, knowing she was a liar. Whatever, she added, unbuckling her seatbelt. She looked back at the quirky house as the strap smacked into place. It had eyes leering right at her. They were just windows to the living room, but in her mind, they blinked. She knew this was impossible, but she was in a staring contest with the house, built on the land where the bodies of several children were broken and slain. She felt the sweat in her armpits and breasts. Let's see our castle for the night, my queen, Paul said offering the sarcastic, dumb face she had seen before. Usually, it made her laugh. This time, it made her bite the inside of her cheek. Paul jumped out of the car, and the slamming of the door made her jump in her seat. She watched her husband smile with glee, looking at where they were to spend their only vacation in the past seven months. As she unbuckled her seatbelt, reached into the back seat, and pulled out her vintage Polaroid camera. It had been one of the many finds during her thrifting years, and she was amazed she could still buy film for it online. As she opened the door, she used her car's hood to balance her shot and snapped a photo with a wheeze. She pulled the picture out, waving it in the air, keenly aware there was something wrong. The windows to the soul of Mr. Frowny's house were still peering at her. The door creaked as Paul pushed with his hip. Lucy, I'm home, he yelled. Dropping their suitcases near his feet, he looked across the house and was shocked by the bleakness. The ad told him there was very little to want in the place, but for such an infamous location, he expected a little bit of pizzazz. There was a used plaid couch, either left to collect dust or bought from a local thrift store, with a family of bedbugs in tow. Beside it was an eclectic chair, antique, ugly, and worn. There were plenty of rips along the handle and a fresh set of cobwebs near its feet. In the corner was an old TV stereo console 
with dusty vinyl sets and an empty decanter in the middle of four Bimar glasses. Paul knew right away they would not spend hardly any time in the living room, unless Cynthia would go through with the Ouija board. They had spent a lot of money on the rental, and he hoped she at least tried for his sake. He didn't ask a lot from her, but from the look on her face, that might not be the case. A rumble from behind him pulled him out of his head. You've got to be kidding me, she said, still holding onto her backs. Pretty sparse, yep, he said, looking back into the living room. You don't expect us to, to stay here? Why not? There's no furniture. You saw that in the ad. They wrote that. I thought, I don't know, like, I thought like maybe it was a joke or something. Paul's eyes lit up. I wonder if he fucked someone up on the couch? Paul? He ignored her. Like maybe he had a kid sitting in this chair. He started, walking towards the living room. And then, with his frown and all, he sliced their throat. Paul gestured across his throat, a frown on his face the whole time. That's like, not funny. Oh, shit. Lighten up. You were all about this place when I showed you. I know, but... But what? It's just... It's it's fucking creepy. Durr. That's the whole point. She nodded her head, but still held tight to her bag, standing in the entryway. Please come in? He asked. Cynthia stood her ground, the clutch of her bag scrunched in her hand. Paul walked forward and reached for her hand. Come on. She let him pull her in, as if proving to the house she was not a willing participant. Something about this comforted her a bit. As she walked in, she set her things on the TV console as they headed towards the living room. The Polaroid picture fell out of her unzipped purse as it all settled. If she had looked at the picture before stuffing it down her purse, she would have seen a pair of long red shoes and a puffy red wig sticking out from behind the unkept bushes to the side of the house. Emanating from the picture, a laugh is heard and softly disappears. The hallway was just a spare. As they walked along, Cynthia noticed a few frames had been removed, the rectangular remnants staining the outdated wallpaper. She rubbed her finger along the outline and turned her head to realize she was alone. Paul? She said. Paul! She walked a few steps before Paul jumped out from one of the rooms. You asshole! She screamed, slapping him a few times on the arm. With a huge smile, Paul laughed. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have. Fucking asshole, she uttered, putting her hands on her chest. Don't do that ever again. I won't, but you got to see this. She could feel her heart pound through the black lace of her shirt, afraid of what made Paul so excited. When Paul had shown her the Airbnb ad, she was just as thrilled by the idea and as there was no way a city would let a house be built on a site where over 15 kids had been murdered at the circus, right in the tent next to the black Ferris wheel in 1943. It had been labeled the crime of the century, but only by those who lived nearby. With the war going on, it hardly made the newspaper at all, 
appearing on the third page from the dedicated reporter who was only writing locally because of a 4F for bad eyesight. Little did they know what a cult following Mr. Frowny, the killer clown, would have over 60 years later. So, when Paul suggested they spend the night, Cynthia trusted her gut it would be safe. Upon entering the room, all she felt was her gut tightening. Sprawled across the room was every clown paraphernalia possible. Punching bags, fast food toys with their mascot gleaming on the plastic. Even a poster from the Burns Tire Company, whose mascot, Bosco the Mechanic Clown, was smiling and waving for people to come in and fix their tires. It was a cornucopia of big-top memorabilia, the likes any cholerophobe would petrify upon entering. Isn't it incredible? Paul asked. This is fucking gross. She spoke softly, staring at a jack-in-the-box already popped open and wobbling from the air vent. I know, right? Amazing. Her eyes searched the room, afraid to stop on any one item. Her gut strained more, and she knew they should leave. Paul, I... There it is! He interrupted and rushed towards the deck in the corner. He reached for his phone, scrolling a bit, and gleamed It says this desk sits on the same fairgrounds where he created Mr. Frowny before he was killed. It also says he would tie them in the corner and make them watch him put his makeup on. Look at that! He yelled, pointing in the corner. Cynthia dreaded looking, knowing it would be there, hanging from an old antique rack. She stared at him instead, willing to fight the urge, but it was too much. Drooped along the rack was the red and blue suit she had seen plenty of times in the crime scene photos. Most were black and white, so seeing the suit in all of its variegated glory, too much of a thrill. Her heart pulsed in her neck, but not like before. This was from happiness. This was about catching the prey of the hunter. She was looking at Mr. Frowny's death robe and hated how much she loved it. Totally rad. Paul foolishly spoke. You think it's? She started to speak. His? No fucking way. That's in an evidence box somewhere. Her eyes focused on the bronze stains along the front. But look. It's fake blood. He said, walking over and grabbing it. Paul! She screamed. See? He said, holding it up to her. His suit would be way bloodier, but I give them credit. It looks pretty close. Smells like shit. She shook her head knowing he had made some mistake somehow. Paul saw her reaction. Oh, stop, Sin. It's all in showmanship. He dropped the garment and looked past her towards the wall. Look at that. Above the makeup station hung a felt painting of a clown. But they knew exactly who it was supposed to be. They had a different version in their basement, above their Blu-rays and autograph collection from famous horror movie stars. Theirs was done by an artist who panhandled at the conventions. This was done by someone long since forgotten. Looking at the two of them was Mr. Frowny, a clown with a painted-on frown, smiling the widest grin with sickly teeth. 
In his hands were a bunch of balloons and a long, sharp knife dripping with blood. A group of young children formed a circle around him. There popped balloons dropping in their hands, crying as their tears spilled upon the ground littered with popcorn and funnel cakes. She was horrified by the painting. Uh, this is this is too weird, babe, she finally said. He would not have admitted it to her, but so was Paul. He collected his thoughts for a second before responding. No, it's not. It's the best. Oh my gosh, look, his eyeliner. God damn it, Paul. I'm done. He realized it had gone a bit too far and held up his arms in defeat. Let's order some dinner. Hot dogs? She was already out the door halfway through his sentence. Oh, stop it. That was funny. He added and walked out after her. As they argued down the hallway, a faint sound of the circus came from the closet door. A small beam of yellowish strobing light rose from the crack underneath, like the top of a carousel spinning around and around. From inside the light, a few kernels of bloodied popcorn fell to the ground as the ghostly laughter of children turned into distant screams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. For Cynthia, the knock on the door could not have come soon enough. She had been starving ever since they had been lied to when it said the house was stocked with food. Not the absence of food bothered her as much as it was just another thing to add to the hatred of the Mr. Frowny house vacation. Paul opened the door. Perfect, he said, already salivating from the smell of the delivery pizza. Paul thought the guy was in his early 20s, making the best out of a life that would only get harder. Paul felt he better tip a little more. Here you go, he said, handing over an extra five. I didn't know anybody ever stayed here. Is it spooky and shit? The pizza delivery boy asked. Oh, yeah. Paul answered. Are there body parts and bones and shit? Paul thought for a second before answering. Yep. Gnarly. The pizza delivery boy smiled and walked away from the house. 
Paul placed the pizza down on the kitchen table and looked at Cynthia. She reloaded the Polaroid, sipping on a warm glass of whiskey they had brought along. Need a refill? Uh, this is my second, so no, she answered back. She knew it was not wise to be drinking, but somehow she had to shake these feelings away, and it was too early for the happy vape. Paul surveyed the feast before him and smiled. Cynthia saw this and knew she loved him more than ever. Her mind told her to capture the precious moment. She whipped out her Polaroid, flashed Paul with a mouthful of pizza, and pulled the film to shake it. Here, he said, throwing a slice of pizza in front of her. She reached over to pull it closer, setting the picture down, when she froze. In the middle of the picture, behind the kitchen archway, was a poof of red, curly hair popping out. She shoved the chair back, sliding her plate to the floor. What the fuck? He yelled. She pointed. The fucking picture! Someone's here, Paul! Where? He yelled. The fucking living room! Paul jumped out of his seat and ran to the other room. Paul! She yelled. Paul turned the corner, glancing around the room, and spun back at her. There's nothing here. What? Come see, he said, waving his arms around. There's nothing here. Cynthia rushed over and saw with her own eyes they were the only people in the room. What the fuck is going on? She softly spoke to herself. Look, Sin, you gotta... Now, she was mad. Look, she ran for the picture and held it up. Look, she demanded. He felt it was kind of cute, but his stomach was usually the boss, and the boss was not happy. Okay, okay. Cynthia held it out farther, as if to guarantee he would see the red hair. She shook the photo at him so hard she popped her elbow. Paul tucked his long hair behind his ears and adjusted his glasses. After a few seconds, he looked up at her. What am I looking at? Her eyes grew from anger. Are you fucking kidding me? I don't see anything but my ugly face. She whipped the picture around and saw for herself. Nothing was there but Paul and his stringy pizza. The hair was gone. She looked up and was about to speak, but the words weren't there. I'm going to finish this delicious meal. I love the enthusiasm, though. Paul, I swear, it was there. Paul nodded sarcastically. Oh, yeah, sure. He added, taking another bite. Paul, it was... I mean... She tried to struggle to find the words. Was the house getting to her? She asked herself. She knew she had seen it. She held the picture closer to her eyes, but nothing was there. When she came to terms with her sanity, she threw the Polaroid on the table and slumped in her chair. Slurping up a long string of cheese that fell on his chin, Paul smiled at her with food behind his teeth. Shut up, she muttered under her breath and looked toward the living room, before the fear of seeing the hair again made her look away. When she ordered them online, Cynthia could not wait for their arrival, and when she saw them, she had to post a picture immediately. But in the middle of the macabre house, the pajamas Paul wore looked silly as he brushed his teeth before bed, not to mention her newly discovered distaste for the clown design all over. I should have burned those when I got them. How dare you? He muttered through foamy lips. We should have gotten matching pairs. Uh, that would be a no. 
He shrugged and looked back in the mirror, the foam looking like a mad smile. He spat into the sink and looked up, his maddening eyes locked with hers. She could see the light bulb slowly brighten in his mind. Although she was afraid to ask, she could not help herself. What? He slammed the Ouija board in the middle of the dirty emerald shag carpet and just smiled that grin she loved and despised all at once. No, Paul, she said, shaking her head. We have to, he responded. No, we don't. We fucking don't. The smile waned. What is your problem? You've... We've been talking about this since we booked the place. Now you're chicken? Just because I don't want to do it doesn't mean I'm a chicken, dick. Paul ignored her and opened the box to place things around him. He knew she could be like this, but it was getting to him this time. They could have gone anywhere with the money they saved up, but Paul booked this for her. A few clicks of a mouse didn't make him her knight shining armor, but... He wanted to make her happy. Cynthia had been enamored with the fear of clowns, and when the ad appeared, he knew this was the place to do just that. But here she was, crossing her arms with a face contorted in angst. Though he knew it was a bad idea, his mind told him to set it up anyways. It wasn't working. As Paul set down the chewed-upon pencil on the planchette, he looked deep into her eyes. Sin, just come on. We said we would do this. Yeah, like I changed my mind, okay? No, it's not. Well, too bad. Now who's being a dick? He sarcastically added, knowing well it would do nothing. Cynthia just spun around toward the hallway, hearing the door to the bedroom slam hard. Fuck, he yelled, hoping she would hear it. He sat there for a few minutes, knowing he could not play himself. It would be pathetic to move the pencil himself, wary the board was a fake. He waited a bit longer before getting up, kicking the board, and heading toward the bedroom. The planchette moved slightly as the door opened, and they began to argue more as the pencil scribbled, ha 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 ha. A faint laugh of a little child emanated from the vent. A sharp set of pink-stained teeth gnarled on popcorn as the children screamed in the background, begging for an adult to save their innocent souls. As Mr. Frowny pulled out a Zippo lighter with the drawing of clowns playing poker to light his drooly cigar, he lifted the knife into the air, the carousel lights glistening across the wet blood. Before he brought it down, somehow, beyond the bounds of reality, The frown turned upside down to a smile on his face. Cynthia woke from the nightmare, the sheets soaked on her naked chest. Gathering her wits, she spun around, knowing the clown was right there, until realizing it was all a bad dream. Paul's snoring helped her ease back from dreamland and nudged him to roll over, an every-night routine they were now accustomed to. Uh, no... He mumbled and rolled over. She looked at the clock from 1982 and saw the white squares read 346 before flipping to 347. She pulled the damp sheets off her body, and as she lifted herself out of bed with her feet, she slipped on her underwear and fell hard on her back. 
She pained at the wind being knocked out of her and rolled over to breathe. Her eyes wide, looking under the bed. A pair of rat-like yellow eyes glistened, and a white-gloved hand sprung toward her. She screamed, backing away as fast as she could, slamming her back against the wall. Paul, grabbing her arms, made her scream again, fiercer than before, knowing it was the clown. Whatever breath she could take was lost in a fit of painful coughing. Realizing she had taken her eyes away, she quickly looked under the bed saw nothing. Hey! Hey! Sin! Paul screamed, unaware he was shaking her a bit as he pulled her up. No! No, no, no! She screamed, thrashing him away, eyes never leaving the empty dark space below the bed. What is the matter? Paul demanded. He's under the bed! Who? She tried to speak, but the pain inside was too much. Then she broke down in his arms. Paul held her tighter, feeling her tears soaking his goofy pajamas. Please look under the bed, she asked, knowing he would see nothing. All right, Paul said. As Paul pulled the sheets over the bed, she knew nothing. Paul turned to her, a mixture of worry and anger on his face. I saw it, she yelled through tears. Sin. He started and was cut off when she bolted toward the door. Wait. She tried to open the door, but Paul grabbed her arm. She met him with a few slaps. Stop, he yelled, but they kept coming until he finally backed away. What is the matter with you? I want to leave, she yelled, wiping away the tears. Let me go. We're not leaving. Stop it. Fuck you. I am. Stop it right now. I need to leave. You're the one who wanted to come to this place. I saw a fucking clown under the bed. Nothing's there. He said slowly to emphasize her insanity. Go to bed. It worked as she realized she might lose a little more than tears. In the back of her mind, she felt the rational person who got her through the hardships of life shake their head in disapproval. She could only shake her head at him, knowing she could not return. I can't. Paul waved his hand at her. I'm going back to bed, he said and started to walk toward the bed. No, Paul, listen to me, she said, leaning a little towards him, but knew better than to get anywhere near the bed. Enough, he said, snapping around. Paul could feel he was at the edge. He could see she knew as well. They had gone through a few bad moments a few years before, and Paul swore he would never go back knowing the answer was in bed. Cynthia wiped her tears and walked out of the room. Paul shook his head and pulled the dry side of the sheets over his shoulders. She rushed into the bathroom and cranked the faucet with her shaky hand. She splashed the lukewarm water on her face and froze when she looked in the mirror. Hundreds of white balloons streaked with with bloody little hands spun on their strings and the reflection behind her. Something was rattling inside the balloons as they turned. The balloons stopped spinning and exploded all at the same time. Kernels of popcorn covered her entire body. Her naked flesh smeared with oily butter and blood. She felt some butter 
drip from her nipple and drop into the sink. She tried to scream, but her vocal cords were frozen, a small click of her throat coming out of her gaping mouth. A small glow of light illuminated from the bottom crack of the linen closet as the faint laughter of a crazed clown was feebly heard. Cynthia found the pucins to scream and rushed to the door that would not open. Her hands, drenched in butter, kept slipping across the doorknob each time. The handle to the closet door latched open. Cynthia knew she would die if she turned around and with all her being tried to turn the slippery handle. The closet door creaked with a festering grievance, the laughter louder and spurting from the monstrous throat with vaporous misery. Paul would have heard her scream by now, she thought, and knew this entity was stopping her cries for help. Yet she screamed so loud a vessel cracked in her throat. Instantly, she had no voice anymore. Desperate and feeling it was her last chance, she grasped hard on the handle. A door flung open as she ran down the hallway, unable to scream. Cynthia slammed on the bedroom door and ran down the hall till it disappeared. Cynthia stopped. She couldn't believe her own eyes. The door at the end leading to the bedroom was the same, but halfway it formed into a circus tunnel, spinning around with little holes that blasted light cylinders. She heard the hideous laugh behind her and knew she had to keep going. She took a few brave steps, but her feet slipped, streaking with buttery blood. She held her hands out to regain control, only to look up at the hallway made of mirrors and a door at the end of the tunnel. She ran toward the door, refusing to see the wretched appearance of the clown following her. She reached for the handle when the door creaked open. The scream of a child being ripped apart in the distance. Staring at her in the darkness of a void were crimson eyes, cracked with, with ruptured veins and a set of rotten teeth. Floating in the air like the Cheshire Cat, a chewed cigar billowing smoked through the diseased gaps. Cynthia tried her best to catch her feet as she slid along the mirrored floor, gaining speed until she fell into the darkness the door slamming shut. Behind the door, Cynthia was able to scream again. Paul kept rolling over, thinking about what she said, acting like a lunatic. He flipped over once more before getting out of bed. He felt some reserve in the back of his neck, placing his feet near the bed frame in case she was right, but nothing swept him under and he was ready to have her warmth next to him in bed. Before he could call her, he opened the door and planted his feet on something soggy. He lifted his foot and was caught off guard by the mushy red popcorn stuck between his toes. Sin? He yelled. No answer. Cynthia, where are you? He yelled again and looked down the hallway. Sprawled along the hallway was a, a long line of bloodied popcorn trailing from their bedroom to the basement door. He ran toward the door, but it seemed forever to reach it, every step eternity in his fear of what might have happened to her. He finally reached the door, and when he pulled it open, a menagerie of rainbow balloons sprung at him. Bloodied handprints streaked across each one. 
Cynthia! He heard himself yell from far away, brushing the balloons away from his view. From behind, a large pink clown shoe, size 36 and a half, kicked Paul down the stairs. He tried his best to stop the fall, but after he slammed his meaty shoulder on the fourth step, ripping his obnoxious pajama shirt, he knew he would journey till the end, broken bones and all. He finally hit the very bottom, falling into a sea of balloons. When he emerged a few seconds later, blood rushed hard from the gash in his head, and his hand throbbed. Ignoring the pain, he yelled, Cynthia! And he knew in his heart she would not answer. As scared as he was, he still moved forward, thrashing through the waves of balloons. Cynthia, where are you? From inside the balloons, she started to laugh a little. Slowly and softly, it grew after each mucousy howl. Where are you? Sin? He beckoned. The laugh grew stronger as he threw the balloons around, hopelessly reaching to find her. From above the stairs, a giant shadow cast on the wall. The carousel lights appeared again in a faint hint of its music aural, but only behind the deafening sounds of children laughing, popcorn popping, and oily machines spinning. Paul looked as a silhouette of a woman dwarfed the wall, and he ran to her. The relief in his heart was destroyed by the goosebumps that sprang all over his body. At the top of the stairs, dressed in the clown suit from the bedroom and eating a bag of popcorn spritzed with blood, was Cynthia. A frown painted on her mangled and gashed face. As she opened her mouth, slicing the edges of her mouth, Mr. Frowny's rancid laugh disgorged from her slit throat. Paul screamed, pressing his fingers so hard to the handrail he split the fractures further down the bone. As painful as it would be to others, Paul was only aware of the pain and fear in his lucid mind. Her eyes opened wide, blood oozing from her sockets. She laughed harder as pieces of skin slid off her face. Paul could not grasp the fear taking over his being. The woman he loved, with whom he shared his life, was gone. He knew inside his rapidly beating heart he no longer saw his beloved, but a monster. To get as far from it as possible, he backed down the steps, sinking into the stream of balloons, and felt something brush across his legs. Then he heard them inside the plastic basin, the children trolling from laughter to screaming in the same breath. Fearing this sound would be the last he ever heard, he pleaded to it. Cynthia, help, please. Mr. Frowny's laugh disappeared, and she began to cry as her face slid off her skull. Paul saw this, and his mind clenched. He tried to crab walk back when the little hands crawled out of the rubbery horizon. There was enough time for him to notice their tiny, rotted arms, the pale gray skin cracking and filled with bloody pus. Some of their hands grabbed his loony pajamas and some his legs. One even grabbed his fingers, 
breaking them even further with the strength of a vice. As he tried to convince himself it was all just a bad dream, he made the mistake of looking over into the far corner. A spotlight turned on from nowhere on Mr. Frowny, a chewed cigar in one hand and the other a rusted cleaver, older than the longest living person alive. <laughs> You're in for the experience of your lifetime, Mr. Frowny said, laughing. Paul's mind ceased as the screaming and laughing children pulled him down into the grave of balloons. As the new renters entered the back bedroom filled with a plethora of clown relics collecting dust from years of neglect, they noticed a painting in its velvety glory and were ecstatic by its eerie scenery. In the middle of the painting, like a gesture performing for a king, the children's favorite clown, Mr. Frowny, frowned as the little devils pranced around him. The children seemed happy as they had two new friends. One was in a clown suit with a smiling skull, and the other was wearing the silliest pair of pajamas you ever saw. This episode is made possible by PWC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PWC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. I hope you enjoyed Mr. Frowny, as written by Ian Klink and voiced by Michelle Kane and Paul J. McSorley. Our very own Paul J. McSorley can be found over on his very own show, Fear from the Heartland, airing Wednesdays at 6 p.m. in both podcast and YouTube format. Be sure to check him out. Our second tale of the evening comes to us from author H.N. Miller and is performed by Danielle Hewitt, Michelle Kane, and Nick Goroff. You ever get the feeling that someone's watching you? The character in this story can certainly sympathize. Without further ado, I present to you, the audience. I ran. Breathing hard, I turned a sharp corner in the woods, hoping I would lose them. Even in the dark, I knew these woods better than my own house. The short, stumpy tree there. Turn right. Huge oak tree carved with my initials. Turn left and a sharp right. If I could get to the creek and cross the water. I had to stop. Ducking behind the nearest tree, I leaned over and grabbed my knees. The stabbing pains in my side came sharp and quick. I knew I needed to move again, but my legs wouldn't budge. I sank to the ground, back resting against the tree's base. A twig cracked, maybe twenty feet away. Close. Too close. I covered my mouth, trying to conceal my heavy, ragged breathing. They knew where I was, though. They always knew. I was so stupid. I could get on a plane and fly to Timbuktu. 
and they would know where I was. Running home had yet to help. Why, why me? What had I done? Why wouldn't they leave me alone? I pulled out my phone and stared down at the screen, the light shining bright in the dark woods like a beacon, begging them to come and find me. Tears brimmed in my eyes, and I didn't stop them from flowing down my cheeks. But then I got angry. I stood up from the base of the tree, one last look at my phone, and I chucked it as hard as I could through the trees. Come and find me, you assholes! I screamed at them. And then I ran again. Three days earlier. Ophelia Parish, the fine arts building on campus, was quiet and dark as I entered with my saxophone case in hand. It was close to 10 p.m., but I knew the building would be unlocked until midnight. I was tired from working at the restaurant, smelling of pizza and covered in grease, but I needed the practice. Working on my piece at home tonight was a no-go. Jess had a 7.30 a.m. Calculus class demanded that she go to bed at a decent time, and she didn't appreciate music quite as much during her sleepy time. Jess was my roommate, best friend from high school and a certifiable genius. A triple major in linguistics, psychology, and criminal justice sounded like lunacy, but I would support her in whatever she wanted to do. She appreciated all the sleep she could get, and I respected that. I passed Mr. Chris, the nighttime janitor for OP. Working hard tonight, Mr. Chris? I asked with a smile on my face. Mr. Chris Johnson was the nicest man you'll ever meet. He was a Truman graduate himself with several degrees under his belt. At least, that was the rumor. He never talked about it. The older gentleman smiled as he pushed his cart past. Probably not as hard as you, Miss Rachel. How's the peace coming along? He asked, his southern accent slipping through. I smiled back. Recital is a month away. I've got work to do. Well, better get after it then. Can't wait to hear how it sounds. Thanks. Have a good night. You too, sis. And be careful walking back to the dorms. I hear some of them frat boys have been at it again this week. I will. I rolled my eyes as I turned to head toward the practice rooms. The sig toss was notorious for trying to scare freshmen after hours, hiding in the trees along the sidewalks and wearing creepy masks, trying to jump out at unsuspecting victims. The RAs were onto them, but these guys have been hard to catch. I walked up the stairs to the second floor, where the old practice rooms were. The new part of the building had just been built a few years ago, complete with brand spanking new music pods, but they had left the old rooms too, mostly for us seniors. We lovingly referred to them as the fridges, as the tall white boxes with clear doors looked much like oversized refrigerators. I'd been practicing in the same one since freshman year, and didn't plan on changing that anytime soon. It was like having a good luck charm. I had survived nearly four years of college as a music education major, so it worked. I yawned and set my case on the chair, pulling out the parts to put my alto saxophone together. Thinking about the senior recital coming up next month made my stomach turn. 
I wasn't a performance major, but all music majors, both performance and education, had to do a senior recital in front of the entire music faculty and any students and families who wanted to attend. My case of stage fright was a real thing. I'd been trying to work my way through it, remembering all the tricks my peers had passed along. Nothing was working. The nausea hit like a tidal wave every time I passed the auditorium, looked at my piece, or picked up my instrument. <gasps> a knock on the glass fridge door made me gasp and jump, practically dropping the heavy bell to my sacks. Jackson, a percussionist I'd known since we survived music theory together freshman year, pressed his nose to the glass and shifted his eyes back and forth, being a goofball and attempting to make me laugh. I threw an empty reed case at him as he opened the door. Why in the world are you here this late? He asks, dodging the case and popping his head in. His mallet sticks were in his left hand, so I assumed he'd been practicing as well. Baking a chocolate cake, I replied sarcastically. Yum. He eyeballed my music stand. Still working through the butterflies? My smirk disappeared. Not butterflies, exactly. Then what do you call it when you're actively trying not to vomit while playing in front of an audience? Shut up. Hey, listen, Rach. I'm glad you're here. I've got something that might help. Jackson said, in a serious voice this time. Another percussionist showed me this app you can download. He sat down on the small ledge leading into the practice room, using his backpack to open the door. He pulled out his Android and swiped the screen to unlock it. Jackson, I'm tired. What does an app have to do with me being a nervous wreck? I flopped down in the practice chair, slumping back. Let me show you, he replied. I even downloaded it to try myself. I shook my head. You, Mr. Extrovert? Jackson held his phone up for me to see. It's called the Audience App. Somehow it works with your camera. Some of the guys in the computer science wing developed it. It projects an image of an audience onto a wall. It recognizes sound, so the audience knows when to be quiet and applaud. It's pretty neat. He tapped on an icon and set his phone down on the practice chair. A light shone from his camera lens and cast a hologram of people onto the fridge wall. They were smiling, standing politely. An audience... Wow, I said back, honestly impressed. I brought out my own Android and quickly found the app in the store. It was even a free download. Thanks, I said earnestly. I really was a nervous wreck about this recital. Any help was welcome at this point. Jackson grinned back. Anytime. We've got music history in the morning. Now, get some practice in. Quiz. I groaned. Ah, uh, I totally forgot about that. Jackson threw up a peace sign before grabbing his backpack, and he left. The practice fridge was once again silent. I looked back down at my phone and hit the download button on the audience app. It was finished within a minute. I sighed audibly. Whatever works, I guess. I opened the app and stared down at a black screen. For a minute, I thought it wasn't going to work. I disconnected my Wi-Fi, then reconnected it, hoping it would fix my internet issues. Still a black screen. I sighed again and put my phone down. 
the guys in CS needed to work on their bugs. I went to work on putting my sacks together when I noticed a light shining under my phone where I had laid it down in the chair. I picked it up and noticed my flashlight seemed to be on. Wait, no. It was projecting. A small image of people shone onto the practice chair. I waved it for a second, watching the people move around on the wall near me. Huh. It worked, I said loudly to no one. I propped my phone onto its side so the hologram would project on the wall instead. It was realistic. I counted eight standing people, four women and four men, dressed fairly generically but with pleasant looks on their faces. They looked like they were attending a concert. Well, I don't want to disappoint you all. Here we go, I said as I slipped on my saxophone neck strap. I had already set up my music stand, my solo piece ready to go. I attached the reed to my mouthpiece and began to play, letting my fingers glide over the keys easily and expertly. I had my piece memorized already, so I closed my eyes and just played, feeling the rhythms and notes. I opened my eyes and was startled to see the hologram of people still watching quietly. It was a little disturbing, I'll admit, but it seemed to be helping my nerves to play in front of them. When I got through to the end, I even hit the crescendo in the right place. I was pleasantly surprised at how well I had done. A slow clapping sound came from my phone's speaker, and I looked up to see my audience applauding me. <laughs> cool, I said, an exciting feeling spreading through my chest. The next night I headed over to the practice building after work. I was excited to try the audience app again especially after how much I felt it had helped me the night before. Earlier today, during my private saxophone lessons, Dr. Smith commented on how much more confident I seemed when I played. He was different from the kind of professor to hand out many compliments. I unlocked my phone and noticed a text message from Jess. Where are you? she asked. It hit me that I hadn't seen her much today. That wasn't unusual. We were both super busy, especially with finals and graduation next month, but we tried to make time to hang out. I typed back a quick response. Sorry, getting in a quick practice at OP. Be there soon. I opened the audience app and once again got that weird black screen. I waited for just a second and noticed my flashlight came on again. As I did the night before, I propped my phone up on the practice chair and the image projected again onto the empty wall. Seven people stood, awaiting a performance. Wait, seven? Is that right? I looked again. Four men, three women. Wasn't it an even number last night? I should run over to the computer science wing tomorrow, see if I can track down whoever made the app to let them know how buggy it is. Then again... Maybe the app is designed to change each time. What do I know? I continued with my practice, accepting the applause the audience offered me when I was finished. I packed up my stuff and hustled back to the dorms. Ten minutes later, I entered Dobson Hall. It was quiet. Unusually quiet tonight. I looked down at my phone. 
11.35 p.m. Quiet hours had already begun. I climbed the two sets of stairs to the second floor and turned right to head for my dorm room. Something stopped me. For one thing, the hallway was dark. Must be a power outage, I thought. For another, I stared down the empty dorm hallway at the strange figure, only illuminated by the emergency lights. The figure wasn't moving, just facing me at the opposite end of the hall. I made a face and squinted. This person was a creeper. Surely the Sig Taos would need to be more stupid to try their tricks inside the dorms. But maybe that wasn't what this was. This person may need help. Hello? Are you okay? I asked. No answer. I took a few steps forward cautiously. I was sure it was a woman. She tilted her head and continued to stare at me, her hair falling to the side. She almost seemed to stare through me. It was unsettling. I spoke again. Can I help you find something? Or someone? Again, I am still waiting for an answer. We stood there for a moment, eyes locked. Then she moved and stepped towards me. Her face suddenly in the light. Her movements were not smooth, almost jerky. She was smiling, not blinking. My eyes narrowed and tightened. This was incredibly weird. Okay, look, you seem like you might be lost. I'm going to find an RA to help you. I turned to do just that, but then I noticed her face, really noticed her face. It wasn't normal. Not just the eerie smiling, the head cocked to one side, the jerky movements. She had streaks running through her skin purple streaks like lightning, down her face, onto her neck, and down under the collar of her shirt. My breath caught in my throat. I didn't think. I just turned and ran to the other side of the hallway, desperate to escape. Each floor in Dobson Hall was built into the shape of a square, so if you got lost, you just walked around until you found your way again. I knew I could still get around to my room and call campus security if I ran the other way. I reached my door, 258, and scrambled for my room key. Dropped it. As I reached for it, my bag fell off my shoulder, slamming into our door. It suddenly swung open and there stood Jess, looking annoyed. The panic on my face softened the grouch in her, and she was suddenly concerned. What happened? Jess questioned as she reached down to grab my backpack for me. I snatched my key and the rest of my things and practically shoved her into the room. As I explained what I had seen, Jess's expression changed from let's call the police to worrying for my mental health. Rachel, we're both exhausted. We have finals, and I know you are stressing about the senior recital. You've also been picking up too many shifts at Tony's. Jess stood and held her hands out to me. You need to go brush your teeth and go to bed. Come on, get up. You'll feel better after you sleep, I promise. I sighed. You're probably right. Sleep sounds like the best idea I've heard all day. 
A satisfied Jess smiled and hugged me, then went back to her side of our double room and laid back in her bed. She was quickly snoring softly again. I went to the community bathroom we shared with the room next door. It was probably a drunk freshman. After getting ready for bed, I quietly climbed and lay down. My heart was still racing, but I felt better. She's right, I'm just tired. The following morning I woke up to my alarm blaring Journey, the only music I'll happily wake up to. I gathered my school stuff into my backpack, saxophone case on the other hand, and prepared to spend my entire Friday in OP Hall. I left the dorm and turned left to walk down the sidewalk. With it being before 8am, the sidewalk was pretty empty. Except for the two people standing in the middle of it, about 20 feet ahead of me. I stopped and just stared for a minute. The people stared back. This time a man and a woman. They weren't moving, much like the person I'd seen in the hallway last night. Just stood next to each other, blocking the pathway. And stared. At me. They smiled. I squinted my eyes, then widened them. Streaks. Purple lightning bolt streaks ran through both of their faces. It was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. My breath started to quicken. What was wrong with these people? <clears throat> Someone bumped into my shoulder from behind and I jumped like I'd been shot. A girl passed me, obviously in a hurry, and throwing a quick, Sorry! back at me as she adjusted her backpack and scurried off. When I looked back down the sidewalk... The man and woman were gone. I closed my eyes and put a hand on my head. They were there. I know they were. Am I losing it? I sat in class 20 minutes later, trying to listen to Dr. Jones's romantic period lecture. I couldn't. My mind was elsewhere entirely. Who are those strange people? Why do they stare like that? Why am I the only one who seems to notice them? I turned to stare out the window, people watching instead of taking notes. Some were taking their time, laughing in groups, and meandering to class. Some were late. Some carried gym bags, probably heading to rec. A small group of guys threw a frisbee around in an open court. Pretty normal. Wait. I sat up a little straighter. There, beside that tree. Three people standing still, staring straight ahead, heads tilted at odd angles. They were staring at me, at me, through the classroom window. They see me. My breath caught in my throat. Before I thought, I gathered my notebook, pen, and backpack and walked out of class. Several students watched me go, and I even heard Dr. Jones get quiet. I let the door slam shut behind me, and I bolted down the hall to the bathroom, passing several people I knew who were calling my name. What's happening? Are those people following me now? Something down to the bathroom floor, I pulled out my cell and called the first person I thought wouldn't think I was crazy. My mom. 
She answered on the second ring. Since it was Friday, my mom insisted I call in sick to work and come home for the weekend. I'll make your favorite, she said. I packed my bag and drove the two hours home. I didn't stop for anything. I didn't see any strange people on the way either. It made me wonder if it was a campus prank. The sick house had up their game. But why me? It was dumb of me to drive home and miss work and my extra practice sessions because I got freaked out over people in weird masks. So stupid. I was brushing my teeth that night in my old bathroom and about to go to bed. It had been a fun day, just hanging out with mom. She's an author, so taking the day had been easy for her to arrange. We watched movies, ate too much ice cream, and talked. She made my favorite meal, spaghetti. It was delicious, as always. She agreed that I'd been under too much stress lately and just needed the weekend to recharge. I turned the bathroom light off and walked into my old room. Mom had left it the way I had left it before I went to college. My favorite stuffed animals are still in order along my headboard, just as they should be. I fell into them and felt relaxed for the first time in a long time. I pulled out my phone to check my messages before calling it a night. Jess had texted, just checking in. I checked the usual social media, then turned to plug my phone in. The light shone on something, something in the corner of my room. No, three figures of people. No. I shook my head and closed my eyes, convinced I saw things in the dark. Still there, still staring at me, smiling in the dim light. A man and two women, I thought, were in my house. They had followed me. I screamed and threw my bedroom door open, running as fast as I could to my mom's room. I scared her to death, I know. I pleaded for her to come with me, to come and see. I felt like a child with a monster hiding under the bed, but this was real. I knew it was real. And someone besides me had to see them. My mom followed me back to my room but there was nothing there. I moaned in frustration and fear. I slept in my mom's room that night with her bathroom light on. I say slept, but I lay awake for hours. I watched for them. I didn't know what they wanted or why I was the only one who seemed to notice or see them, but I was scared out of my mind. Why? Why me? It was a question I found myself asking a lot here lately. Ever since I downloaded. I must have dozed off because a scraping sound startled me. I looked at my phone. 3.15 a.m. I looked over at my mom who was sleeping soundly, her back to me. What was that? My mom didn't have any pets except for her betta fish she kept in her office. I thought my heart would beat out of my chest. I eyeballed every corner of the bedroom and saw nothing. Cautiously, I got up, the bed squeaking softly. I turned my phone flashlight on. I would have checked under the bed, but it was a platform, so 
I knew that was okay. Scraping sound again. It sounded almost like metal, but it was coming from another room. The kitchen, maybe? My mom's house was a little small, so hearing sounds from room to room wasn't unusual. I tiptoed out of the bedroom and turned left to go down the hallway towards the kitchen. A soft light glowed from the kitchen. Mom had always left the kitchen sink light on for me as a kid, and the habit had stayed. I turned the corner to step into the small kitchen. Two people stood at my mom's kitchen sink. Two of those people with purple lightning streaks through their faces. And one was holding a kitchen knife. They stared at the doorway. At me. Like they'd been expecting me. Those permanent smiles plastered on their faces. All of the air left my body, and I did the only thing I could think to do. I ran. I ran right out the kitchen door and into the woods surrounding my mom's property. Saturday morning, 8.30 a.m. She just left, right in the middle of the night? The deputy asked leaning against his police car, notebook in hand. Yes. When I woke up, she was gone. I think she had been scared and had a bad dream, so she had slept with me in my room. I never even noticed she had gotten up. You're sure she didn't go back up to school? Maybe she decided it was better to head back. Her car hasn't moved, deputy. It's still here. Deputy Stewart nodded solemnly and closed his notepad. We'll go out and look for her. Did she sleepwalk? No, not that I know of. The officer nodded once more before returning to his car. Three days later. Jackson entered the empty auditorium where his bells were set up. He met a few other percussionists here to work on the recital piece. He had arrived super early. I could get some extra solo time in before they get here, he thought to himself. Jackson pulled his phone out of his back pocket to check his messages for a hundredth time. He was really worried about Rachel. Jess said she freaked out last Friday and hadn't returned from her mom's house. It wasn't like her not to answer his texts or calls, even from home. He swiped his phone, looking at social media notifications, and noticed his audience app. I haven't used this in a while. I wonder if there have been any updates. He didn't really need to use it. He mostly wanted to show it to Rach to try to help her. He tapped the app to open it. It crashed. Jackson grimaced and tried again. Stupid bugs, he muttered. The app opened that time. His flashlight came on, and an image projected onto the floor. Nine people. Nine generic people stared back at him, pleasant smiles on their faces, awaiting a performance. I hope you enjoyed The Audience, as written by H.N. Miller and performed by Heather Thomas, Nick Goroff, 
Michelle Kane, and of course, myself, Steve Taylor. H.N. Miller is a new author with three published short stories that can be found on the Vocal website. She has two books in the works, one being a collection of short stories and the other a fantasy horror novella. Heather Thomas and Michelle Kane's work can be found right here on our very own network, as well as all over the Creepy Podcast. Check it out and be sure to let them know Steve from Chilling Tales from Dark Nights sent you. On that note, be sure to check out the other shows we offer on our network. We have Horror Hill, airing Thursdays for your hardcore, more brutal offerings. Drew Blood's Dark Tales airs Fridays, featuring some southern down-home horror. Fear from the Heartland airs Wednesdays. Longtime resident Otis Jiry has a show on Sunday nights that features two stories on the Standard Edition as well as two more which can be accessed through our patrons area. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, Get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.